Okay, I think we're we're good to go. This this week we're going to do the first half of the last seven years. Okay, the last seven years is tribu- is tribulation with a little t. Okay, there it's divided into two halves. The first three and a half years and the second three and a half years. The second three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. Okay, so we're going to do the first three and a half years this week. Now we kind of started it last week. Uh, and you're going to want to follow along. This is the main, this grid is the main worksheet we'll be using today. So pull, the, pull your grid out and then kind of have your scripture references handy. And you're going to need your Bible because we've we got a lot of flipping back and forth to do today. Because we've gotten to the part in Revelation where we no, can no longer read Revelation kind of verse by verse. We need to take the pieces and put them together, the pieces that go together, together, so that we get a good chronological picture. Last week, we started the, the story of the struggle of good and evil. Remember, we went back to, to Genesis and, and saw where that started. And here on this handout, on the grid, I've numbered the rows so we can kind of stay together. We, we did the first two, three rows last week. So, so just as a quick review, say, we saw... In Scripture, Satan per- portrayed as a dragon, pursuing Israel, who was portrayed as a woman. Israel was given refuge for three and a half years. That's the first three and a half years of tribulation. Satan tried to drown her, but it says the earth opened its mouth and saved her. And in this grid, you've got two columns. The first column is the spiritual reality. It's, it's a view of what's happening Basically, from a heavenly point of view, it's, it's the spirit view of it. The next column is how that looks on earth. Okay? It's the earthly reality. So we had taught last week and decided that, that you know, we, we don't really know exactly how Israel will be protected. It's possible that, you know, she's protected by the other nations. You know, that there's a, a military kind of a, a protection. We just don't know. But it's clear from this passage that the Christian world, the saints, are left vulnerable. The second row is where Satan, if you remember, stands on the seashore and calls forth a beast that looks like son of Satan. You know, he looks exactly like Satan. He's got seven heads and ten horns. The only difference was that for Satan, his, his crowns, his diadems were on his seven heads. On the beast, Satan transfers his power and authority and his throne to this beast temporarily. And those diadems appear on the horns of the beast, which are the ten horns, which obviously equate to the ten segments of world government at that point. So we know from, we're going to go, you know, just kind of remember back to our study of Daniel. From Daniel, we remember that the Antichrist begins his rise to power as a little horn. Remember that? There was ten horns, and then he's a little horn that grows up and uproots three of the existing ten horns. So we know that when the Antichrist begins his rise to power, he is not a king. And in fact, we're going to read a passage back in Daniel in a minute that, it, that specifically says that when he starts out, he's not royalty. Okay? He's not a ruler. And when we had studied Daniel, we kind of figured that he was probably a, a sidekick, you know, to one of the main ruler, one of these powerful world rulers. That it was obvious that, that he had power 
and that it was big power. Now, in Daniel, um, in Daniel 8.23, which we're not going to look at today, but I've given you the um, reference in your grid, the eight, Daniel 8.23 says the Antichrist is completely wicked. says he's a master of intrigue, and he's gifted with power from somewhere else okay which we now know to be the power from Satan because we can put Revelation and Daniel together and see that it was the power of Satan we also know from our study in Daniel that the Antichrist is apparently a Gentile well one way we know he's probably a Gentile is because in Revelation Satan calls him from the sea and the sea is typically in scripture we've studied that means nations okay if, it, if it's just Israel, Israel is not ever referred to as the sea. Okay. So he's, he's probably a Gentile. We know he's from somewhere in the old Roman Empire because Daniel 9.26 tells us that he comes from people who, will des- who destroy the Jerusalem and the temple. And that actually happened back in AD 70. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So we know he come, that he comes from somewhere in that ancient you know, Roman Empire, which was huge. I mean, it doesn't exactly narrow it down, okay? <laughs> but we, we also know from Daniel 8, verse 9, that he comes from one of the four breakouts of the Greek Empire, which also covered that same geographic region. But we know the Greek Empire was divided into four pieces. There was an Egypt-Palestine piece. There was a uh, Greek piece, a Greece-Macedonia piece. There was an Asia Minor piece, which is kind of where Turkey is. And there's a Syria piece. Okay, pull out your um, CIA map real quick. That's the one that was handed out today and you should have it from we keep referring to this all the time Syria is just north of Israel you see it it's this little piece right here okay now in Daniel chapter 11 there is a whole saga of military fights between Syria who's called the king of the north and Egypt who's called the king of the south halfway through chapter 11 is where the Antichrist arises. And he is called a king of the north. Okay, He comes from the north and becomes a king. He doesn't start out a king. He becomes a king. For that reason, I believe the Antichrist will come from Syria because those prophecies in Daniel kind of successively narrowed it down. Now, you know, he may not come from Syria, but that's how I interpret what I'm reading here. So now we look and on, on row three of that we covered last, which was what we covered last week. The beast, from a spiritual point of view, the Antichrist, looks like a leopard, has feet like a bear, a mouth like a lion. We, we know that um, you know, Babylon is a lion, and so his mouth is a, it looks like a lion. We are uh, interpreting that to mean that his capital is Babylon. Okay, we we know that the bear, the feet like a bear, bear was Persia. We looked at a map last week and we decided that that probably means that his wealth and what actually makes his his power base go, okay, is is coming from that Persian Empire, that old Asian, old ancient Persian Empire, that region, and if. 
the time is coming soon, that would make sense because that's where all the petroleum reserves are. Okay, and and that's currently what's making the world go. So it's very interesting that 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 world events certainly seem to be moving this direction. And then and then the beast looks like a leopard, which we saw that the leopard, of course, was the Greek Empire covers this whole area. So you know, geographically, we believe you know we believe, or I'm interpreting that the three kings or kingdoms that he conquers must encompass, be encompassed in that large geographic area. Okay. Now, I want to do a little more digging in this because when Satan calls the Antichrist forth, that marks the beginning of tribulation. The official mark of the beginning of tribulation, you know, is when the Antichrist signs the covenant with the many, right? So, and and so Satan theoretically could call him forth, you know, sometime before that. But they're going to be happening very close together because we're talking about a man. So it's within this one man's lifetime. OK, so um, we what we're going to do is we're now going to start the tribulation. We're going to start the last seven years running. OK, the 70th seven and t- go through scripture we're going to be picking up from revelation and elsewhere in scripture the chronological sequence of events now never fear we are going to cover every verse in revelation before we're done but i'm just putting them you know in order now so look at revelation 14 verse 14 then i looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, Revelation does not give us a time frame for this. Okay? But there are two harvests like this. There's this one and then there's one that, that is described again as, as a harvest where grapes are gathered and they're basically grapes of wrath. That's where that term comes from. So um, they appear to be brackets of some sort. These harvests are marking an event. Now you could say they happen together. Okay. You could say that one happens at one time and the second harvest happens at another time. You could say that, that the first harvest is a bracket that begins the great tribulation, which is the last half, and the second harvest ends it. Or you could say that the first harvest begins this, happens at the beginning of the seven years. The second harvest happens at the beginning of the great tribulation. Okay? Any of those will work. Any of those interpretations will work. Just to have a place to put it, I'm going with this, the last version, which is that the first harvest occurs at the beginning of the seven years, the last seven years. That the second harvest, which is the grapes of wrath harvest, occurs at, mar- at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. I, I have no solid basis for that other than that's where I'm putting them. <laughs> okay. Because it doesn't say. Now... That's on row four of your grid. And so that's the spiritual view of what's happening. The physical view is we know that seven years starts when the Antichrist signs the covenant with the many. In Daniel 7.24, 
is where we see the Antichrist rising and crushing three of the ten kings. You kind of have to put that together with some of the other stuff in Daniel to understand how that happens. One thing you want to look at is, the, is Daniel 11, 21, and 23, which we're going to read in a minute, that say the Antichrist seizes power using intrigue and deception after the covenant with the many is signed. Okay. So when we read Daniel, our interpretation was that he actually brokers this world covenant and then builds on that power base, takes the power for himself from that point forward. Okay. And he begins, at some point, very shortly after that covenant, he begins military campaigns, especially against Egypt to his south. We're going to read here in a minute that Israel is going to side with Egypt and Assyria. Now, I want you to look at Assyria on this colored map. Okay. It's the map labeled Map 3, Assyria in the Old Testament. <coughs> it looks remarkably like, you know, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire. I mean, they're kind of all covering, fighting over this same area. It's this green part here. Comparing that to your CIA map, you can see that Syria is right here in this little corner, okay? And with Israel just below it. So Egypt is down here, okay, at the bottom. If Assyria is this part over here, that would include modern-day Iraq, Iran, okay? So when, if you're trying to plug this into your head for now, what we're talking about is an alliance between Egypt, Israel, Iraq, and Iran, and, you know, that basic region, against the Antichrist as he begins to grab power from his power base in Syria. Okay? That's how I'm reading these scriptures. Let's read them together so you can see for yourself. We're going to start in Daniel 11, verse 21. This is where Daniel begins to talk about the rise of the Antichrist. So, in, in, the, in the preceding king's place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. That's, what we, that's where we know he, he was not originally a ruler. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. There's lots of prophecy in Daniel that this antichrist is a sneaky devil, no pun intended. Okay. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. And when we read Daniel, we decided that that meant that when he began to take power for himself, he had to overthrow whoever led that covenant of the many originally. Okay, Probably the, whatever king or ruler he was working for at the time. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. And he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. So you see, it's after the covenant that he really begins to build his power base. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, which, at least in today's terms, is this exact geographic area we're talking about. Okay, the oil-rich area of the world. And he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. So, so part of how he gains this power is by giving away the riches, okay, which he doesn't really care for about. You know, that's not what he's about. 
but that's what everybody else is about. So he's got the richest part of the world and he's giving these riches away in order to draw people in. Okay? Then he's going to stab them in the back. He will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. Who's the south? Egypt. With a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand. For schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him. In other words, he's betrayed internally. And his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. So even though he's got this huge overwhelming force, probably larger than what the Antichrist is commanding, he's brought down by intrigue, internal, okay, internal strife, and he's defeated. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. Well, how many bargaining tables have we seen like that, right? But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land, this is the Antichrist, will return to his land with much plunder. But his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. So, Something happens in this war with Egypt that makes the Antichrist really mad at Israel. Okay, that's what that just said. He starts on his way back home, up north somewhere, okay, presumably Syria. He takes some sort of action, doesn't say what it is, but he does something and then continues home. Okay, now we're going to find out some more about what he exactly does in the next passage when we're going to read some stuff out of Isaiah. But let's finish up Daniel. At the appointed time, we're in verse 29, he will return, this is the Antichrist, and come into the south. So he's going to do this again. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For the ships of Kittim, which when we studied Daniel, we found out those were ships of Cyprus, will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he... he, he Gets mad at Israel again. Okay? Takes action again. But this time it's worse than it was before. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. That marks the beginning of the Great Tribulation according to Jesus. Okay? We read those verses in in the Olivet Discourse. So here we've read about what uh, an overview of what the Antichrist does militarily from his rise to power at the beginning of the tribulation to his setting up of the abomination of desolation at the midpoint of tribulation. Okay? So that's the first three and a half years. Take a look at Isaiah 19 starting in verse 1. Isaiah gives us a whole lot more detail about what's going on with Egypt. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight against each against his brother and against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. That is exactly what Daniel said was going to happen, right? 
there's going to be internal strife in Egypt that is going to cause their downfall to the Antichrist. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. That's the Antichrist. This is, this is telling us again what is going to happen. The waters from the sea will dry up and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. I'm going to skip down to 10. All the hired laborers will be grieved and sold, skipping down to 13. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. Again, it's, this confirms what Daniel said, that it is the basically noblemen who are sitting at the king, at the king of Egypt's table. These are his cabinet they're talking about in modern day terms. Okay? He is betrayed at the highest levels. And that's exactly what Isaiah says too. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. There will be, and verse 15, there will be no work for Egypt, which its head or its tail, its palm branch or bulrush may do. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. So we know that Egypt will be subject to this drought and famine that we have already studied about as being part of the judgments, part of the seals and trumpets. Remember that? So here is a specific information that this hits Egypt for sure. Okay. Also, they have no work. So now... Isaiah goes on to tell us some specific information about the state of world politics at this point. Look at verse 17. The land of Judah, which is Israel, will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the land of Canaan. What's the, what's the language of the land of Canaan? Hebrew. And swearing allegiance to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. And a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors. That's how bad the Antichrist is. And he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and heal them. In that day there will be a highway... From Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. 
a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. And you don't read that prophecy very often. I dare say there's a lot of folks in here that that's the first time you've ever focused on that particular prophecy. That has definitely not been fulfilled, and it will happen at the end time. So we see now, to finish off row five, that the Antichrist utterly dominates three of those ten world kingdoms, which includes Egypt, presumably includes Assyria, since he makes his capital in Babylon, which is right in the middle of Iran, right? Iraq, sorry. Right in the middle of Iraq, right by Baghdad. And we don't know, you know, exact timing, but we do know that he begins his rise to power at the beginning of the last seven years and that he continues his rise to power and and reaches his zenith at at the middle of the tribulation, at the middle, middle of the seven years. Let's see, where are we now? We need to go to Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 for the next part. We're on row 6 in our grid. This is so exciting. (laughs) I get so wound up about this, I can't even sleep. Okay, (laughs) Revelation 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of heaven so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he seals 12,000. He lists the 12, you know, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000, on through the 12 tribes of Israel. But I want you to look at the tribes. The tribes are Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. You know what? There's more tribes than that. The tribe of Dan and the tribe of Ephraim are omitted from that list. And yet it says in verse 4 that these 144,000 are sealed from every tribe. Of the sons of Israel. So we have a seeming conflict here. This means we need to dig a little in scripture. It also didn't mention any Christians at all. Right? But we know we share. Right? So we need to do some looking here. So let's look. First place I want you to look is Genesis chapter 48 verse 5. This is in your handouts. Or in your scripture references. The scene is in Egypt, where Joseph is ruler. His father, Jacob, whose other name is Israel. Okay, this is the original Israel, is lying on his deathbed. Joseph comes to him and brings his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, for a blessing from his father before he dies. And here's what it says. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. 
Then Jacob, who is Israel, said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons, who were born to you, Joseph, in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, your two sons are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that ha- that you have any more offspring you have, the offspring that are born to you after this will be yours. They will be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. But for inheritance purposes, Israel says, I am adopting Ephraim and Manasseh as if they were my own sons. From that point forward, guys, Israel was 14 tribes. Did you know that? There, it was never 12 tribes again after that. But always God refers to Israel as having 12 tribes. And when Israel is, is referred to in her entirety, it always talks about the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they list the 12 tribes. But there's 14 tribes at least. Okay, So look, let's look at a couple of lists in Scripture that do this so you understand the point here for the in uh, numbers 13 verse 1 the scene is the israelites are at the very edge of the promised land for the first time they've been wandering around um, and they've gotten to the to canaan and they're fixing to send spies into the land to see if they can conquer this promised land The Lord said to Moses, send out for yourself men so they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So he says, out of all the tribes, you pick a man. Okay. And there followed a list of 12 tribes. The tribes omitted Joseph as a tribe. But listed Ephraim and Manasseh, okay, who were Joseph's sons. Well, that makes sense because there isn't a Joseph separate from Ephraim and Manasseh. So if you're going to pick a man from every tribe, Ephraim, you pick one from Ephraim and one from Manasseh, that covered Joseph. Okay? But in order to get to an even 12, they had to omit somebody now. So they've omitted, there's 14, they've omitted Joseph, right? They omitted Levi. That's pretty common that they omit Levi. It's not always the case, but they did in this case. Now look at 1 Chronicles 12, verse 22 through 38. This is a list of the tribes of Israel for the purpose of sending men to war. So this is David. David is, is, is battling with Saul and the men of Israel are coming to him. For day by day men came to David to help him until there was a great army like the army of God. And you know what? At this point, they list 14 tribes. But they list a different set of 14 than the 14 I read you a minute ago. They list Levi as a tribe, which is cool. But they list Aaron as a separate tribe. within, You know, just like Ephraim and Manasseh are within the tribe of Joseph, Aaron would be a tribe within the tribe of Levi. Okay? Well, they list as a tribe... Levi, Aaron, Ephraim, and Manasseh, and they leave out Joseph. So they get back to the to 14 tribes. 
Okay. Now look at Numbers 26, verse 55. This is a list for the purposes of inheriting the land of Canaan. They're in the promised land, and now they're divvying it up amongst them. The land shall be divided by lot. They shall receive their inheritance according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. And, um, and then it goes down to verse 62. The Levites who were numbered of them were 23,000, every male from a month old and upward. But they were not numbered among the sons of Israel because no inheritance was given them. Now that makes sense because the Lord said the priests, the tribe of Levi, will never inherit the land because the Lord is their portion. Okay? So the sacrifices that would get brought to the, to the temple, the Levites would live off of that. that. They were allowed to live off certain of those sacrifices. So when you're dividing up the land for inheritance, it makes sense you would leave out Levites. So we're expecting to see 11 tribes now. Okay? Then in, uh, in Numbers 34, I mean it goes on Numbers 34 uh, and also in Joshua 13, this same story is told a couple of times. You shall take one leader of every tribe to apportion the land for inheritance. And there follows a list of ten leaders. Okay? which represent nine and a half tribes because what happens when they inherit the land the tribe of Manasseh split into two pieces on either side of the Jordan River so half of the tribe settled on one side and half on the other so the way that the inheritance worked is Reuben, Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh settled on the eastern side of the Jordan and the other nine and a half tribes settled on the western side so you put all that together, and the Levites are omitted. You put all that together, you get Reuben, Gad, the tribe of Manasseh, Ephraim, and all the other guys. You omit the Levites, you end up with 13 tribes, right? Because out of the 14 that had been in existence since Israel, before Israel even died. Okay. So now that we're going to move down to Deuteronomy 27, verse 9. This is where they solemnize or solemnize their identity as a nation. And they actually, Moses divides them up onto two mountains and into two big groups, their tribes. And says, you have to stand over here and whenever I holler a blessing that the Lord promises, you shout and carry on and, and acknowledge it. And, and the, other, the other half of the tribes, he said, you stand over here and whenever I read out a curse that the Lord says, if you don't obey my Commandments, then you guys holler. It's like a football stadium, you know. And and and, but it was his way of making them remember the blessings and the curses. He made them repeat them. He made them remember them. And so here's what. Ha- and he listed which tribes were to stand where. That's why we're reading this. So Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, "Be silent and listen, O Israel." This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. And so then he, there comes a list of the tribes, and it's the original 12 without Ephraim and Manasseh listed. Okay, Joseph is listed, but not Ephraim and Manasseh. And then you go on down to Deuteronomy 33, verse 1, and you get the actual blessing of Moses. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And he goes through every, every single tribe of Israel and blesses them. He blesses 
13 tribes. He blesses Joseph, but he also blesses Ephraim. He blesses Manasseh. So now he's up to, you know, he's got to leave somebody out, right? Because he's, he's got 14 tribes now. He leaves out the tribe of Simeon and ends up with 13 tribes in his blessing, okay? That's how it's recorded, okay, in Scripture. Now, look at, we've only got two more to look at. I'm just driving this point home here. 1 Chronicles 27, verse 1. Now, this is a, a listing of Israel, the sons of Israel, the heads of the father's households, the commanders of the thousands, the commanders of the hundreds, and all the officers. So this is a big list, and it goes on for chapters, okay? But this is a big list. But the part that's important is in verse 16, because it says, Now, here's who's in charge of the tribes of Israel. And it lists the tribes and the name of the guy who's in charge of them. There follows a list of 12 tribes. But they list Ephraim and Manasseh and Levi and Aaron, which is part of Levi. So they got to leave some folks out. So they leave out Joseph, they leave out Asher, and they leave out Gad. It's a different set that get left out every time, okay, in, in the way. And they're, they're just not real, you know, they just don't worry about is it. It's the 12 tribes of Israel and they don't care whether they list 12, 13, 14 15, you know, whatever. Most tell, or 11. (laughs) Most telling, however, is the list of the tribes in Ezekiel. And you know why that's important? Because when Ezekiel's listing them, he's listing the tribes that inherit in the millennial kingdom. The thousand year reign of Christ. When he comes on earth. This is a future listing. This isn't a past listing. So let's look at Ezekiel 48 verse 1. Now, these are the names of the tribes that receive land. And there follows a list of 14 tribes, which includes Levi, the tribe of Levi. It does not list Aaron separately, but it does list a new set. And this set is called the priests who are the sons of Zadok. Now, they're listed specifically Because that little subset of priests, that one household of priests, remained faithful to the Lord throughout the history of Israel. And when all the rest of the Levites led Israel astray, the priests of the house of Zadok did not go that direction. For that reason, in the millennial kingdom, they are specifically listed As being allowed an inheritance and allowed to operate as priests before the Lord. They are given a special place. Ephraim and Manasseh, Levi is listed as, I mean, Levi is not left out, so it's listed. So you've got the sons of Zadok, Levi, Ephraim and Manasseh are listed. But since we're talking about land, Joseph is excluded because Ephraim and Manasseh are the tribe of Joseph, right? Okay. And... And then, after, and, by, and after that, then there's another list in this same context, but it's a list of the gates that the new Jerusalem will have, that the rebuilt Jerusalem will have. And that the city is, has three gates on each side, so it has to be 12. And the, the tribes that are listed are the original 12 tribes, including Dan and Joseph. I want to go back and make you think here. We've now seen a listing in the millennial kingdom of every single tribe 
including the two that got omitted from the list of the 144,000, okay? So we know for a fact that Dan and Ephraim did not get disinherited, okay? That's not what that passage in Revelation implies. They are not a lost tribe. You'll hear people talk about the lost tribes of Israel. Well, they're saying that because they don't find them in various lists, okay? Which, as you can see, is not a significant factor, Okay, they are not lost. God knows right where they are. They're going to be there in the in the millennial kingdom. But have you ever thought since we are grafted in to at full as full heirs with Israel to all of their promises through Christ? What tribe are we in? We have to be in a tribe, right? I think we're in the tribe that's counted as the sons of Zadok. The word that name Zadok means righteous. We were promised as Christians that we would be priests and that we would share in the priestly function. If you read your New Testament, you will see that promised. I think that's where we fit in the millennial kingdom. We're Part of Israel. You have to begin thinking of yourself like that as you read your scripture. So now, when we go back to Revelation, to this bit about the 144,000 and 12,000 from each tribe, from every tribe in Israel, we know not to take that literally, right? We know that all of the tribes of Israel are implied in that section. That's what I think from studying how it's used in Scripture elsewhere. Okay? And I would say that the sealing, the important part of the sealing, if you go back to the wording of the, the, that bit in Revelation, look at verse 3 in chapter 7. What was said was, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. That's the important point. That's the command. Then there's this list and, you know, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that. That's not the place to focus. I think this means all the bond servants of the Lord are sealed, including us. That's probably one of the places where people split as to when the rapture is. Right. That's right. That is one of the places. Because some, they're thinking that this is just Israel. Right. And then they have to... And then they have to do something with those missing tribes because they show up later, but they don't ever talk about that part. But, mm-hmm. okay. but it's, it's just kind of interesting. But there's a lot of speculation about why the Lord left them out. So, anyway, that's my interpretation, and I'm sticking to it. So <laughs> let's move on to um, line six. Rose, uh, I'm sorry, the, the second side of row six. We were on row six, but let's look at the physical side. So all the living servants of God are sealed on the forehead. It doesn't say sealed for what purpose, but presumably people assume it's as protection from the wrath to come. Okay. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be that. It doesn't say they're protected anywhere at all. In fact, as Christians, we know we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is a quote straight from scripture. We are already sealed. They don't have to do something special for us. 
Does that mean we never hurt? Does that mean we never die? Does that mean we never have loved ones who die? Does that mean any of that? Does that mean we never suffer, that we are never tortured for our faith? No, that's not what that means. It just simply means we are ransomed. The deposit has been put on our Coke bottle, okay? And it's going to get claimed one day. So it is entirely possible, and I think probable, that these 144,000 or who represent the bond servants of God are simply all being sealed as belonging to God because you know that the you know the bulk of Israel is is not Christian yet, right? Okay. So we're having a sealing process going on here. So I just want to put that in your mind. That if you have to live through this and you find yourself suffering, don't give up hope by thinking that you missed your seal. You are sealed. 144,000 is not very many people and I don't think it should be taken literally. I think it's a representative. Yes, I do. Because, and the reason I think that is because it was 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe. And I know that it, that includes all the tribes. Why would they use numbers? Well, numbers are used throughout Scripture symbolically. And I did not do a search on, you know, what 12 meant. I would have to do that to see why would that particular number be picked. But certainly, 12 times 12 is a square, which would imply some level of perfection, you would think. Okay? Especially as related to Israel and Jerusalem. But it would be speculation at best. So, food for thought. It also, I want to point out to you that Revelation never says when those four angels release their destruction. Remember, they, had, they were told, don't harm anything until we seal everybody. But it never then says when they let go. Okay. I'm assuming that they are holding back some of the physical forces that occur when the seals are broken and the trumpets happen and, and all that stuff. Okay? I think that's implied here. Now, look at Revelation 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. This is the spiritual reality and it's row seven, the very last row on your grid today. And well, uh, you know, if anybody needs to leave, just get up because I'm going to run over probably five or minutes or so, maybe a little five or ten minutes longer just to get through this part. The physical outworking of that angel who was sent here to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth The physical outworking of this is described in Revelation 11, verse 1. So turn there and let's read what happens. We're just going to read the first six verses. Then there was given to me, this is given to John, a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, we know 
that one of the events that has to happen before the tribulation or right at the beginning of it is the temple has to get rebuilt in, in Jerusalem, right? Because there have to be sacrifices for the Antichrist to stop them, okay? So we know the temple gets rebuilt. And we also know that during the first three and a half years, Israel is protected from the Antichrist, correct? We've read all that the last couple of weeks. But we also know that at the midpoint of the seven years, at the end of the first three and a half years, the Antichrist is making his way up from Egypt and he, is, he goes by Israel and he sets up that abomination that causes desolation. And he utterly desecrates the temple and ushers in, according to Jesus, the great tribulation, which is the horrible three and a half years at the end. That's the three and a half years that the Gentiles will trample the temple. Up to that point, it's been Jews in there doing sacrifices, right? But the last three and a half years, the Gentiles trampled the temple. And that's what this is referring to, okay? The only real definitive event in the Bible that you can say, okay, this is when this happens, the timeline starts. The rest of it's practically speculation once we the, that, what, what the comment was was this is the only event you can absolutely point to, to and say I know when this occurs okay, to count from that point the, I would argue that the other one will be the signing of the covenant with the many by the antichrist but in order to recognize that one you're going to have to know all this stuff we've been studying so you recognize it because it's not going to necessarily come out in the papers the antichrist signed a covenant to, to people who have studied, it will. There'll be a lot of covenants. So There'll be lots. We don't know if it's the covenant. Say, oh, yeah, that, was that was the one. That's right. That's right. And and Jesus and I think that's why Jesus picked that one and says, when you see this one, run, because the great tribulation is starting. Because it will be unmistakable at that point. Unmistakable. So let's continue. Um, before you know, we get to that desecration, there is an event that I think is part of what makes the Antichrist so mad. Okay? Not only is Israel making treaties against him with Egypt and Assyria, okay? but I think this next bit explains one of the reasons he's mad. And one of the reasons he's mad is because he gets embarrassed. And here's how it happens. Verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. And these two witnesses have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now we know that all of that stuff is happening during those first three and a half years. And we know we just read about how it it happens in, in Egypt, right? Okay. So these two witnesses are... A thorn in the Antichrist side. They're really making him look bad. Okay? Because he can't do anything about them. Because this is occurring during that time when Israel is being protected. Okay? And yet, these two witnesses, they are witnessing the gospel. 
they are proclaiming it to the ends of the earth. There will be no place in this world that gospel doesn't reach. And that prophecy will get fulfilled. Revelation doesn't say exactly who these two witnesses are. And there, depending on how many classes you've been in, you will know there's tons of speculation about who they are. Here's two common ones. They're Enoch and Elijah because those two did not taste death. They were taken up without dying. Okay, therefore they must be the two witnesses. Flimsy, flimsy, flimsy. Second two. <laughs> Second two. Moses and Elijah. Because those were the two who appeared at the transfiguration of Jesus. Flimsy, flimsy, flimsy. I'm telling you, I think it's two other identities and I'm fixing to show you why. Okay. Now, I'm showing you from prophecy, from scripture, from specifically from prophecy about the end times. That I'm going to have you convinced by the time I get through. That, but if they don't turn out to be these two guys, I want you to keep your eyes open, okay? You'll know who these witnesses are when they show up, but I'm going to show you who I think they are. I want you to actually turn in your Bible to the book of Zechariah. It's the next to last book in the Old Testament, and it's kind of little, so you might miss it. But flip back to Matthew and then go two back from him. Zechariah. Now, don't get him confused with Zephaniah, who's even a little further back. Okay, this is Zechariah. Now, I'm not going to read you the whole book of Zechariah. You should you should read the whole book of Zechariah. But I am going to tell you what happens in these chapters. We're just going to kind of flip through the chapters together and talk about them. Zechariah was a prophet who lived at the time of the Babylonian exile. Okay, so he is younger than Daniel. All right. He's a younger man, but he's living during that time frame. Okay. And he actually is of a priestly family and is part, you know, his family is part of the group that goes back and rebuilds Jerusalem. So when he's talking about the things that are happening in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, he he knows what he's talking about. But anyway, near the end of the 70-year exile, Zechariah has a series of visions. And they're recounted in his book. In chapter 1, the Lord calls Israel to repentance. And it says the people repent. They've been punished 70 years. They're ready. They're on their knees. Okay. And they repent. Zechariah then sees four horsemen who come to the Lord. They've been out in the world and they come to the Lord and they report to the Lord that, you know what, Lord? All those nations that have persecuted Israel and that killed them and took them into captivity, those nations are fat, dumb, and happy. They're living in peace and security out there while Israel is suffering. The Lord reacts to that report and shows Zechariah that those nations that punished Israel will be punished themselves. Okay? The Lord has not forgotten, forgotten. Israel. He, he says he will return to Jerusalem and both the city and the temple will be rebuilt. Well, we know that that did happen during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when the exiles were allowed to return. The, the books that that's recorded in in the Bible are the books of Ezra, the books of Nehemiah. And, we, and in our Daniel class, we looked at some of the things that happened. But the officer who was in charge was a guy named Zerubbabel. 
That's a Babylonian name. So we don't really know what his Jewish name was. We do know that he was of Jewish lineage. We do know he was of Jewish lineage and that it was royal lineage. So he was a Jewish officer sent to rebuild the temple. And he was accompanied by several priests, among them a priest named Yeshua or Joshua. Okay. And Zechariah knew Joshua. However, when Zechariah goes on in chapter 2 and begins to describe, and chapters beyond that, and begins to describe the temple that he sees being rebuilt, it turns out it's not just that earthly temple from the end of the exile. Zechariah is given to see the future temple. Okay, and he be, he has given a number of prophecies about the end times. In chapter two, Zechariah sees a man being sent to measure Jerusalem, and he says, "Go run after that guy who's going to go measure Jerusalem and tell him it's a pointless task because in that day Jerusalem is going to be so populated and so large it will not have a wall. You won't be able to just take a measuring stick and measure it, but the Lord Himself." will be the wall of a wall of fire around Jerusalem. And and he will be its glory within. And he and Zechariah is told when the, in that day, when that happens, many nations will be the Lord's peoples. So it's not just going to be Israel. It's going to be Israel and the Gentile. Many nations will be the Lord's people. In chapter three, Zechariah sees the high priest Joshua standing before the Lord. And there's other people there, and he's told at one point in this chapter that these are what he's seeing is symbolic of things to come. Okay? Joshua's sin is removed. And he's crowned with a new priestly turban. It doesn't say in this chapter, but we know if we go back and read Exodus, that the high priest's turban that he wore was inscribed with with the saying, Holy to the Lord. So Joshua's sin is removed, and he's made holy to the Lord. Joshua is told in this vision that if he keeps the Lord's requirements, he will govern the Lord's house and will have a place among those standing in the presence of the Lord. He's then told about the Messiah and told the Lord will remove the sin of the land in a single day. Look at Zechariah 3 verses 8 and 9. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are assembled. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And those of you in the Daniel class will remember a handout entitled Stone, where we did a search on the use of stones symbolically throughout Scripture and found that 99% of the time it referred to Jesus specifically. The other 1% of the time it was God. (laughs) Okay? So that, when you see stone used symbolically in prophecy, you can substitute the word Jesus there. Okay? And understand what it's talking about. Branch, the branch, is a title also used to describe the Messiah several places in Scripture. I did not list them for you on your Scripture reference, but if you want the references, they are Isaiah 4, verse 2, Isaiah 11, verse 1, 
Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Jeremiah 33, verse 15. And then there's two places in Zechariah that specifically mention the branch. That is a messianic title. That, the branch is Jesus. Okay. Now, we go on to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Zechariah sees a gold, one gold lampstand with seven lights on it. And there's two olive trees, one on each side. Wow, sounds kind of like what we just read in Revelation. Except in Revelation, there were two olive trees and two lampstands. But it's, you know, the same kind of vision, two olive trees. And this is the only place in Scripture, these two places are the only place this vision occurs. So they're obviously related. Immediately, Zechariah asked the angel who's with him, what's with the, lamp, the olive trees and the lampstand? What does that mean? And the angel gives him an answer that makes no sense whatsoever to Zechariah. So Zechariah asks him, asks him again, says, but yeah, I heard all that, but tell me what are these two olive trees and the lampstand? And the angel doesn't answer him. And so he asks him again, Angel, tell me, what are these two olive trees and the lampstand? What do these mean? And here's what the angel tells him this time. Zechariah 4, verses 12 through 14. Look at verse 13. He answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, no, my Lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. That's exactly the same phraseology that was used to describe the two witnesses in Revelation. So we know these are the two witnesses. Well, probably makes sense to go back and look at the original answer that the angel gave Zechariah. Because I bet it makes more sense to us than it did to Zechariah. Let's look at it. It's in the middle of uh, chapter 4. And it starts out with a very famous phrase. Famous scripture. The scripture is... Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. We know from looking at the witnesses in Revelation that that makes sense. They are going to spread the entire gospel to the entire world, not by power, not by might, but through the spirit of the Lord. They are not an army. They only have the spirit of the Lord. Then the second thing the angel told Zechariah was the mighty mountain will become level ground and Zerubbabel will bring out the capstone of the temple with shouts of God bless it. Now what capstone, capstone, stone being used in scripture, in prophecy, symbolically, what is that? Jesus. That's right. So Zerubbabel will bring out Jesus as the capstone of the temple, which makes sense. The capstone is the finishing stone. He's both the foundation, the cornerstone, and the finishing stone, the capstone of the temple, to shouts of God bless it. What a picture. But Zerubbabel's long dead by now, right? So we're talking about end times here. Look at Jeremiah 51, verse 24. Because Jeremiah gives us a little insight into this mighty mountain that's going to get leveled. Because Zechariah sure as heck didn't tell us what it was. It's on your uh, references. But I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. 
Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags. And I will make you a burnt out mountain. They will not take from you even a stone for a corner nor a stone for foundations. But you will be desolate forever, says the Lord. Now, that's in time prophecy clearly. It is using phraseology typically reserved for Christ as the cornerstone, right? He's talking to Babylon and saying, you will not have this. You are the exact opposite of this. What is the exact opposite of Christ? The Antichrist. Where is his capital? Babylon. Is he going to get destroyed? Utterly leveled from a spiritual point of view? Yes, and a physical point of view, by the way. I think... The mighty mountain that Zechariah is prophesying as getting utterly leveled represents the Antichrist and his power. And that Zerubbabel will bring out the capstone of the temple. So, Zerubbabel then is in this same chapter, in this this chapter 4, Zechariah sees that Zerubbabel is told that he laid the foundation of the temple and he will complete it. you know which was bringing out the capstone and that men will rejoice when they see Zerubbabel with the stone in his hand now many of your Bible translations will say they will rejoice when they see Zerubbabel with the plumb line in his hand plumb line that Hebrew is can equally be translated a separated or chosen stone okay and I think in the context here that's a better translation And that I found in my notes to the NIV Study Bible. So there's, you know, it's not just Gail Evers telling you about Hebrew. That is, you know, truly, and I I did look up the Hebrew, but but that is truly what that means. Now, in chapter 5, Zechariah sees this gigantic flying scroll that goes out over the land, banishes every thief and liar, destroys their dwelling places. And then he sees, this is just the very next chapter, right? Then he sees a measuring basket, which they used baskets back then to measure grain and stuff. And it has a woman inside of it. And this heavy lead lid over this woman, keeping her in this basket. And two other women take the basket to Babylonia. And they take the basket to Babylonia to build a house for it. And when the house is ready, that basket will be set there in its place. And the woman, it says, represents the iniquity of the land. Which calls to mind the end times. Remember, the transgression has to be fulfilled, brought up to its complete fulfillment during those last seven years. And remember that um, the fullness of the Gentiles is to come in during this time, which basically refers to both the iniquity as well as to the Christians coming in. That whole prophecy in Zechariah 5 is telling us about this end time where the Antichrist and wickedness is going to settle in Babylonia and be full up. In chapter 6, the four spirits or winds of heaven in the form of chariots go out from the presence of the Lord. They patrol the earth. And there is a mysterious comment that taken just by itself would confuse you. But you all from this class will know what it means. Zechariah 6 verse 8. 
Then he cried out to me and spoke, saying, See, those chariots who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. What, what's in the land of the north? The Antichrist. Remember? He can, he's the king of the north in Daniel. Zechariah is then told to make a crown and place it on the head of the high priest Joshua and make a messianic prophecy. By the way, most of you know this, Joshua is Hebrew for the Greek word we know as Jesus. This Joshua is not Jesus, but he's got the same name. Zechariah 6 verse 12, and we're two minutes away from being done. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. And he's referring to the office of the leader of the people, which Zerubbabel represented, and the high priest, which Joshua represented, which historically in Israel fought all the time. Okay. So we've seen two key figures in Zechariah. One is Joshua, the high priest, who foreshadowed the role of Christ, right, as high priest. The second is Zerubbabel, the Jewish officer of royal descent, who is represented as the builder of the temple, again, a foreshadowing and role of Christ. Both are prophesied in Zechariah to be present at the end times, right? These were clearly end time prophecies that are occurring long after the original Zerubbabel and Joshua are dead. Zechariah specifically sees the two olive trees on either side of a lampstand, and he's told they are the two anointed ones standing in the presence of the Lord. I think the two witnesses are Joshua and Zerubbabel. The book of Zechariah goes on with even more prophecies of the end times. We've read many of them already in our studies. They foretell of the rescue of Jerusalem at the second coming. They tell about the rejection of the Christ at the first coming. They tell about the destruction of Israel's enemies, the cleansing and restoration of Israel. But best of all, there's a prophecy that the Lord will return to Jerusalem and dwell there forever. We're going to stop there.